and welcome to the Photo Brigade podcast. I'm Robert Kaplan. I'm a freelance photographer based here in New York City, and I'm also editor of the Photo Brigade blog, a resource for freelance photographers to share their work with a great community of peers and photo lovers. Check us out at www.thephotobrigade.com and on Facebook and Twitter at Photo Brigade. We're also now on your favorite podcast servers, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Zoom, and BlackBerry. Check us out and hit the subscribe button. This episode is brought to you by Enduro Tripods and Ball Heads. Designed in the USA, they make unique products like the Hi-Hat and their 5-Way Panhead. Check them out at EnduroGear.com. In this episode, we talk with my friend and talented New York City-based music and sports photographer David Bergman, who is currently on tour as Bon Jovi's tour photographer. David and I talk about his entire career, from his humble beginnings as a college yearbook photographer, to working as a staff photographer at the Miami Herald, his move to New York City to build a freelance career, the events that led to becoming one of Sports Illustrated's go-to freelance photographers, his push to become a big-time tour photographer, how becoming the Gigapan man changed his life, and finally, why President Obama personally told him, you got skills. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the second Photo Brigade podcast. I'm Robert Kaplan, editor of thephotobrigade.com, and uh, I'm also a photographer here in New York City. Uh, today I've got David Bergman, who is Bon Jovi's tour photographer of tourphotographer.com with me. Uh, how you doing, David? I'm good, Robert. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. We're actually broadcasting from David's house or apartment in, I would call it, upstate Manhattan. <laughs> I've, I've never been quite this far up in Manhattan. Come on before. now, it's uptown, but it's up uptown a little bit. We're talking 180s plus streets. <laughs> I, I didn't know they existed that high. That's great. But anyway, um, I just wanted to you know chat with you a little bit about uh, you know your 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 Bon Jovi's photographer. And I haven't seen you for a number of months now, and that's because you've been on the road constantly. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've been up to lately? Yeah, it's been pretty good. Um, basically, I started with Bon Jovi in uh, early 2010 when they were on their last tour. <clears throat> and I was working with them sort of sporadically here and there as I was. they were getting to know me and my work. And then eventually they added me on full time. And late 2010 and all of 2011, I, was, I did every show um, that they performed. So that was a lot of fun. And then they were off... Late 2011 and 2012, they took off between albums, and then now in 2013, they started back up the beginning of February, and I've been on the road full-time with them. So we started uh, U.S.-Canada leg, and then I did some promo with them. They had some um, TV shows and things they did in Europe, London, and Germany, and um, and then we've been in the U.S. and Canada, and then the rest of the year we go – in May, we're in South Africa, and we're in Europe – and then <laughs> summertime, I think we've got some stadiums back in the U.S. And then at the end of the year, uh, Japan and Australia, and there's a show in Brazil, and it's it's insane. It's that's pretty. Totally, that's pretty mind-boggling. It is. I mean, it that, really is. That's some serious travel. Um, I, you know, you were really uh, helpful with me because I I did the Bieber tour, Justin Bieber. That is, in case <laughs> you were curious. Um, Who? <laughs> back when he was just a, a wee, wee lad. <laughs> Unlike the old man that he is now. Yes, exactly. At the age of 19 or but, whatever. But you gave me all sorts of great tips because you've been doing this music photography for, for some time now. Um, can you tell, give me a little, um, you know, backtrack a little bit in your career and, and tell me, um, tell us, I guess, how 
you got into this career? Because I actually get a lot of people asking me, oh, how do you, I really want to shoot artists. I want to do what you do. Um, how did you start? So yeah, I, I'm sure you get it. You get it as much as I do, but yeah, pretty much every day, somebody either email or in person comes up to me and says, I want to tour, you know, the world with big rock bands. And the unfortunate thing is I think there are like five of us that have ever done that, you know, that do it, that are doing it currently and actually making any money at it. So um, it's not a, an easy an easy profession to get into. But you and I have similar backgrounds, whereas we both have photojournalism backgrounds. I started um, – I was a photojournalism major at the University of Miami. Actually, I was a music major before that at the Berkeley College of Music. A music major? I was. I what was kind a, of music? Well, I mean I was a drummer. Oh, okay. And I was a music production major. I really wanted to produce. I wanted to work in the studio and I used to go – I went to the Berkeley College of Music, which is a very famous uh, music college in, in Boston. And I went there for my freshman year of college. I was in high school. I was a band geek. I was in a marching band and a jazz band and a concert band. And I taught in the beginning band and I did all that stuff. So it was a logical progression to go to a school like Berkeley. And I used to hang out in the studios downstairs. Like this was 19 whatever year that was (laughs) and uh, quite a while ago. And I used to hang out in the studios and just watch these guys work because they would – we would during the day we would have access to those studios for our classes, but then at night Berkeley would rent them out cheap to like guys doing you know TV jingles and things like that. So two, three, four in the morning, I'd go down there and just hang out, and that was really amazing just to see these guys working. So anyway, I digress a little bit, but it's really sort of formed my love of of that sort of behind the scenes of music and the real the real work that goes on behind all the glitz and the glamour. So. Um, my my sophomore year of college, I transferred back to the University of Miami, and I was a I sort of stumbled into the school newspaper. Uh, I had a camera, I didn't really know what I was doing with it, and uh, walked in off the street, and and the uh, photo editor gave me an assignment, and I went and shot it, and he showed me how to process the film, you know, back in the film days, and. Uh, I guess he saw something he liked, and he gave me another assignment after that. And eventually I became – the next semester I was the assistant photo editor, and he graduated. I became the photo editor. I was the editor-in-chief of the yearbook, and I did that whole progression that that you do at that point. And then after college, um, a few years uh, in my – this was now in Miami. I was a stringer at the Associated Press at, the, at UPI you know, for a couple of the agencies down there. And then eventually I got my big break, which was a full-time job at the Miami Herald. So that was – really where it all started for real. Because once I got hired full-time, I wasn't a freelancer anymore. Now I'm a full-time staff photographer at a, you know, at the time it was like a half a million circulation paper. It was one of the it's biggest. It's a great paper. Yeah. It's really great paper. It really, it really, I think it still is. I don't see it much anymore, but definitely back then. And, and especially before I came in, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, they were really, they were winning Pulitzer Prizes all the time. And they still are always in the, in the running. So it was pretty amazing to get hired. That was my first job. You know, my first real job. So I was there throughout. This would have been, all right, this was the 90s, basically. 93, I was hired part-time, and then either 94, 95, finally hired full-time. And I stayed there till 2001, and i that's really where I learned everything. I mean, you know, there's nothing to replace the experience of, you know, having an editor at a major Metropolitan Daily come to you and say, okay, we have a four-column hole on the front page of the paper. You have two hours. Go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are always so tense. Yeah, you know? <laughs> feature hunting. I mean, you know, when you have an assignment and something in particular to photograph, that's a bit easier. But it didn't always happen. And sometimes, you know, they've got a hole and they needed a compelling photo that sort of summed up, you know, something, a feature, something that was happening that day with no instruction. Just go. And that happened all the time. And plus, 
working in a city like Miami, there was a lot of spot news. There was a lot of sports. There's, you know, feature assignments, food assignments, uh, you know, pet of the week. You do a little bit of everything. So I was kind of a, I don't know, a sheltered kid growing up. I mean, you know, I grew up in the middle class family in South Florida and, um, you know, I had never really been into the bad parts of town or anything like that. So all of a sudden now I'm covering like high school basketball games and the, where the teams are really good are neighborhoods that I had never been into. So now all of a sudden this, this kid from, you know, middle-class South Florida has got to go into the inner city and, and figure it out. Right. And I covered riots and I covered natural disasters and I covered all kinds of stuff. Um, that I didn't necessarily want to, but that's where, you know, I would say I put hair on my chest because you got to just figure it out. Right. That's awesome. So did you, did you, would you say that you learned a lot just uh, sort of baptism by fire or, or were there maybe different photographers and editors that you would learn from? The yeah, it was both. I mean, I'm fortunate. I think that I came up in the film era because what happened is you'd go out and shoot and then you have to come back to the office with your film. You have to process at the office. So we had, you know, film machines and we had to dip and dunk our film, mm-hmm. both co- for originally black and white and then eventually color negative. So we'd come in and process it and then bring it out into the middle of the newsroom. The, the photo area was like this island right in the middle of the newsroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd come out and I'm this kid, you know, this 20-something-year-old kid who doesn't know what the heck he's doing. And I'd come out with a roll, you know, two rolls of film all excited like, oh, here's my, my big shoot that I just did. And a photo editor, you know, these big-time photo editors who'd been there forever would go through it. And they had a monitor above their head. And we, it was like a it was like a – like a projection, uh, like a projection kind deal, of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they would go through the negatives. It would turn it into a positive and they could look at it on the monitor. And they would go through them and they would just rip me a new one. <laughs> and But, you know, of course you hate it at the time, but that's how you learn. You know, it's unfortunate today. I hate to say kids today, but, you know, it's a little unfortunate to me that because of the digital revolution – you know, you can shoot something and just transmit five images from your home and never have any contact with a photo editor. And I think that's a shame because you need to, you need the criticism, right? You need somebody to say, that's awesome. That sucks. Why are you wasting my time shooting this picture? You know, you should have worked that a little bit harder. That one's good. This one's bad. I mean, you need that. And I had that day in and day out for like eight years. So, and so besides the editors, also you're surrounded by a bunch of really great photographers. The Miami Herald, you know, is known for some of the having the best some of the best photographers in the country. So, I literally shared a darkroom with. We had darkrooms, right? We had our own personal darkrooms where we, you know, and, and usually it was three, two or three to a darkroom, and we probably had ten darkrooms. Wow! And yeah, this was this was back in the day, right? And I shared um, my darkroom just you know by luck of the draw with Carl Joost and Patrick Farrell. Pat Farrell, who won the Pulitzer a few years ago, and Carl Joost was an amazing, well-respected photographer. So, I mean. I was in the dark room, you know, we wouldn't be in the dark room at the same time, but you know, I could walk out of that room with a print and like whoever was standing around, I could show it to them and say, Hey, what do you think of this print? And they would say, Oh, you should lighten the face a little bit, darken the background, whatever, dodge the corner, whatever it was. And then, you know, we're just, we're all around. We had that, there was that camaraderie there that I think, you know, again, I think is lost a little bit today because we all work so individually now and it's way more of a solo career than it used to be where when you had to go into a newsroom. You make a really good point about that. I mean, I can remember when I interned back in whenever. Uh, <laughs> what, like two years ago? Yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I can remember having those same experiences, you know, talking with different photographers and showing them my work and, and, and even today, you know, taking portraits t- today, like literally today, um, <laughs> 
thinking back to those tips that he said, oh, make sure not to, you know, have anything distracting coming out of the person's head, hmm. you know, frame the person, da, 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 da. Yeah, and the problem now is that, you know, you send in five pictures, and a lot of times, you know, these editors are busy, and you don't get any feedback at all, and then the picture runs – so you think, oh, I did a great job because the picture runs. Well, what you don't know is in the office they say, well, we've got a four-column hole. We need to run something, so we'll just run that. It's the, it's the best one he, he sent, you know, and they're bitching about you in the office, but you don't know it because you don't get any feedback. And, you know, the editor should give more feedback, but I think they're just busy and they're overworked and, and underpaid. So so I guess to, to kind of talk about this, you know, what you're talking about here um, – I. Also, we should mention that David is a very accomplished sports photographer as well, works for um, Sports Illustrated and other publications, I'm sure, mostly, mostly Sports Illustrated. Um, uh, do, you, do you get that kind of feedback from editors when you, when you shoot ball games? Yeah, so, uh, you know, not as much anymore. Um, I mean, these days, I guess at this point in my career, for better or worse, you know, they kind of expect you just to do your job, right? So at a magazine like Sports Illustrated, you get some feedback, but for the most part, we're working at a pretty high level. And, you know, if you're shooting the Super Bowl for Sports Illustrated, they're not going to say, oh, don't forget to use your 600. You know, I mean, it's right, like right. we pretty much hopefully know what we're doing. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we'll talk about it beforehand. Like, Something like the Super Bowl, they'll actually plan out, okay, where everybody's going to position themselves since we'll have 12 photographers instead of like a normal game where we have one or two. Sports Illustrated actually sends 12 people to the Super Bowl. So we'll have meetings beforehand. Everybody knows what their assignment is and where we're positioned, and so you don't overlap coverage, and we'll do things like that. But no, you don't get as much feedback at this level that, that I used to. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I try to do uh, when I, I, I do a lot of work for the New York Times and other publications, and, and I always try to give them a call uh, once I uh, submit my assignments and ask them, you know, what their thoughts are. Did they like it? Uh, you know, I hope to hear them say that they really liked it. But, you know, occasionally they, they say, oh, you know, I wish I had a little bit more of this or that or the other. And it's always very informative. And that's a great point. Cause, and I do that too. Not as much with SI necessarily unless it was something unusual that I was trying something different and want to ask them how it looked. But any of my other clients, I always do that. I, I follow up, you know, it's a great thing to follow up ideally on the phone, but even email, you know, is better than nothing. Because if you just send it in and then you see it in the paper, you see it in the magazine, like I said, you think, oh, I'm great. <laughs> you know, they ran it. But it doesn't mean it's any good just because it got published. Right. Okay. So this podcast, we always, or, you know, at least the last couple, I don't really have any like set agenda, but I've totally skipped. I, we started a conversation about your, <laughs> we went your, off on a tangent, your Bon Jovi yeah. and getting into uh, music photography. Let's, let's kind of go back there. So you're at the, the Miami Herald, right. you, you've got your career going. <laughs> How long did that last? And, and, and when did you transition and, and move to New York? So? Right. So 2001, uh, actually, I guess it was in 2000, you know, kind of started to think like, all right, this job is great. And I had a, you know, nice job at a big paper and a staff car and a pretty good salary for, for a newspaper job. And, you know, but the problem was it was kind of starting to dawn on me like, all right, this is going to be it. Like, for the, you know, this is some people just do this and they stay at this career their whole life. At, at the same paper. And that's awesome if that's for you. But I just kind of felt like there's got to be more out there. And I'll tell you, now that I think back at it, one of the things I think that really pushed me was because I grew up in that newspaper world and that was kind of all I knew. And, you know, I was a photojournalism major and then I went right to newspapers. 
I sort of I don't think I realized what a big world it was out there um, in in the in the photo profession. And I actually went. I convinced the Miami Herald to send me. They paid to send me to the Platypus Workshop. I don't know if you've ever oh, heard. Oh yeah, of I've it. heard of that. Yeah, definitely. But I think they're still doing it. Um, uh, my good friend Dirk Halsted, who is former Time Magazine White House photographer, who took that famous photo of Monica Clinton Lewinsky. and Monica Lewinsky, yep, yeah, hugging Monica Lewinsky before anybody knew who she was. Um, yeah, and uh, so he sort of and a couple other guys founded this workshop. And the the short version is that it was to teach. Photojournalists, still photographers, how to shoot video. That was kind of the thing. It, they, 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 they sort of saw the future of photojournalism, and they predicted it would be with moving images more so than with stills. And the, the, the um, economics was drying up for still photos, and it was all going towards movement. This was before everybody had broadband internet. You know, this was really futuristic stuff. Mm-hmm. So this was in. I went in two thousand, and it was a. I think it was a four day or five day workshop. It was pretty intense. And they start talking about things like, well, you could shoot a, a you know a video piece on on a, a photojournalistic topic like you know homelessness or even a, a piece on on a person, and just a compelling story, just like you would as a still photographer, but make it into a video piece, and then you can license it to like Nightline, <laughs> you know. And I was and they had done this. This wasn't in theory. This was a lot of these guys were working for Nightline regularly and and, and making good money by licensing to television, and. I didn't necessarily want to go down that exact path, but I it sort of opened my eyes to, hey, there's a lot of other ways to license images. There's a lot of other things we can do with images, and these skills that we have, we can apply them in other ways besides just shoot it for a daily newspaper and get it published and then go on to the next assignment. So I left there all excited, and then and I, I wanted to do a lot more at the paper, and I started shooting some video, and they really didn't get it yet because mm-hmm. it was real early in that, you know, in the web and... They just didn't quite get it, and no newspaper did. Nobody was really doing it yet, and I wanted to do more video projects, and so I did a few, and they would just like pop them on the website, but nobody really knew how to how to deal with it then. So it just kind of, I think, mentally brought me to a new place where it's like there's so much more out there, you know. And besides just covering, you know, the Miami Heat season every year and the Dolphins, and you know, I enjoyed. I did become kind of the sports guy at the paper, so I was mostly doing Heat, Dolphins, Panthers, Marlins, University of Miami, that stuff, and it was great. I mean, it was a fun job. Well, you know, what's interesting about sports is I used to do a lot of sports myself. Right. I mean, a lot of sports when I interned at the Times and and most of my other jobs or whatever. It was constant sports. Yankees games, Jets games. It never Jets ends. Games. I mean, you can be a sports guy and just shoot all year round. There's always sports. I got I got burnt out on it. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, obviously you really dig it. You really still love shooting sports, yeah? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I do love it. He did roll his eyes a little. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I'm enjoying the music right now, so oh. it's, it's I you know, I haven't done much sports in the last uh, six months or so, so it, it would take me, uh, you know, besides the Super Bowl. Besides the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the playoffs in the Super Bowl. But no, no, I mean, you know what it is? I love the images. I love the sports images. When you make a great sports photo or just look at a sports photo by somebody else, guys flying through the air and action and helmets getting ripped off. And I love that kind of stuff. I mean, it always gets me excited. Um, You know, going to the events, you know, I'll admit it's just it's become a bit of a hassle because there. here's the thing. When I work for Bon Jovi, I can go wherever I want. Right. I work for the band. The venue can't tell me where I can go or can't go. The promoter can, can't tell me. You know, I mean, I work with people. I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But if I want to shoot from the rafters, you know, I just walk into the promoter's office and say, hey, is there any way I could go to the rafters? And they bring me up there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
we'll be in Vienna in a stadium and the sun is setting and I'll say, hey, it'd be cool if I could make a picture from the roof of the stadium. No problem. Somebody brings me up there. That to me as a photographer is the most exciting thing. And you understand access. This. Yeah. access. It's all, and it's not only access to the band, but even just like I said, being able to go wherever I want that I think there's going to be a picture there. If I if anything that I can think in my head, it's I can try to make that image. So at the Super Bowl, you know, I'm in a spot and I'm stuck there. And if the play comes to me, I got to nail it. You know, I've got to make the picture. A little pressure there. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's I think there's more pressure at a regular season game because it's me and maybe one other photographer. We've got 100 yards to cover. We got to cover the whole thing. So if there's a play far away from me, it's my fault that I'm not there. Or yeah, or a fumble going the other direction. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, I'm downfield waiting for a, a a bomb, and there's a you know a sack and a turnover and a touchdown that goes the other direction. I'm screwed. I've got nothing. So, and the other thing is, if I have my monopod like two inches in front of the line, some security guard's going to yell at me about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that's just gets old. That gets old, man. And you know, I don't want to get into fights with security guards. And so, um, so that's why I rolled my eyes a little bit when you said about the sports thing. I love. The pictures and I, you know, and certainly, I mean, I'm honored and I'm blessed that I've, you know, shot, I'm not going to run down my list, but you know, I've done a lot of Super Bowls and World Series and Olympics and all that kind of stuff. And it's great and it's fun and it's, it's hard know, though. It is hard. It's, it's much, it's, it, I found it to be very taxing. Not, I mean, a, it's a lot of time you spend. So you, you get assigned one assignment, you got to shoot a football game. You got to get there in advance to get your yeah. Shit together. I <laughs> right. said it. Okay. Is this First, a PG? Uh, no longer is it PG. Right. But you got to get there early to get your, your shit together. You got to, you know, shoot. You got to get all the action. If you're working like I was for the New York, for you it's different with the SI because you can just ship everything to them afterwards. Usually, I guess, no, unless. No, I, I bring I'm all wrong. my own gear and. Oh, you mean the images? In, in terms of images, like yeah, a, lot, yeah, yeah. a lot of time, like shooting baseball, one of the things that I had to deal with was. Yeah, editing is a bit of a nightmare. Well, it's like they wanted. They want. They want art for the the web as the plays are happening. <laughs> right. So it's like you get some sort of great image that that and, and then you have to send it in and then you're missing the game while you're sending it in and it's just a you know sort of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, and uh, and like you said, there's all sorts of um, issues you have with security. They're, you're usually crammed in some sort of space and and um, it's always a hassle because like I'm security doesn't care who you know who you're shooting for or whatever. I'm on the same sideline with every other photographer. You know, people think like, oh, you're shooting for Sports Illustrated. You can do whatever you want. And that's not the case. I'm, I'm on the same sideline with everybody else. I can't go walk into the locker room and, you know, work on a documentary project about, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick. No, I, I'm out on the field and I'm behind the line just like everybody else. So to make a picture that's – when you do make a picture that's better you know, than what anybody else made, it's really hard. I mean it's just – it's hard to do because you're you're all locked into the same spot, whereas – when I work for a band and I'm their guy and I, you know, I have that kind of access that I can just go anywhere and do anything. That's that's fun. It's liberating and it's way more fun. Totally, totally. Okay, so um, so back to the timeline. Let, yeah, let's back to our what we were talking about before. So, um, so it's 2001, around late 2000. I started to get you know a little um, antsy, I'll say. You know, whereas I was looking for the next thing. And um, 2001, basically. Just gave my two week notice. I went in and saw uh, Maggie Stever, who was the director of photography. Oh, at the I time. love Maggie. She's, She's the great. greatest. I love Maggie to death. 
She very famous uh, National Geographic photographer and just one of the kindest people you ever meet. Well, she was the director of photography at the time at the Herald. And again, it goes back to that. I mean, I got to work with Maggie Stever every day. You know, I mean, where else do you get to do that? You get mm-hmm. people pay lots of money to go to one of her workshops sure, for yeah. a few days. And she was my boss. So um, I uh, so I gave my two notice and she was so sweet. I mean, she, she was, you know, asked me, is it money? Can we pay you more money? I mean, she wanted me to stay. She was very generous. And I just told her, I said, look, I think I'm ready for the next phase of my career. I've been here a long time. And, and, you know, for me, what seemed like a long time. And she was very supportive. She understood. She said, that makes perfect sense. And you should do that. And so basically picked up and moved to New York. Um, I was uh, married at the time, and so we, uh, the two of us, just moved. No jobs, nothing, right? Wing it. And yeah, and, and just just winged it. So, uh, so the first like six months as a freelancer in New York City, I, I kind of freaked out. And you basically take anything that comes along, right? So I had some contacts, but you know, not a not a huge amount of them. But uh, you know, I did PR jobs, I did parties, you know, whatever it was, just to just to make some money. And then over time, you start to fall into okay. I moved here for a reason. What, what, where do I want to put my focus, literally and figuratively? And <laughs> boom, boom, <laughs> photo joke. And, um, uh, and you know, what am I going to do with my career? So I kind of settled into sports and music. I, it would have been nice to, to pick one from a marketing standpoint. I, I've, I've had trouble with that over the years, sort of marketing to two different fields because I've always felt it's better to be a specialist than a generalist. Very few people can pull off being a generalist. Joe McNally can do it. He's one of the few that really is a true generalist and, and can get, take an assignment from any magazine or any, you know, anybody in the world and just nail it. Um, most people, I think, from a marketing standpoint, and I'm going off on a tangent here again, but I think it's important. I th- I've always felt like I want to be known as the best at something, mm-hmm. right? Because when you've got a bunch of photo editors sitting around – and let's say it's it's you know Rolling Stone, and they're sitting around and they say, well, we just need somebody who can shoot a concert, right? It doesn't matter who it is; can be anybody. It's a it's a you know one hundred and fifty dollar concert shoot, and it and we just need anybody. So they'll start at the top of their list. They'll pick somebody that person's not available. They'll go to the next person. It's no big deal. Or that's not enough money for the first person. They'll just go to the second person, right? Mm-hmm. No big deal. Nobody's going to remember you that way, but. If they are sitting around and they say, we've got a piece, it's a cover story, and we need somebody to go on the road with the Dave Matthews Band and you know spend a week living on a tour bus and, and do a real great documentary behind the scenes, they're not going to just pick a name out of a hat. I want them to say, we need Dave Bergman or we need so-and-so and so-and-so. So, or Robert Kaplan. Or Robert I, really, I really like the Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> exactly. Well, there you go. And so do I. So um, – and if you're listening, Dave, uh, you know we're both available, and you can pick us out of a hat. But anyway. You can go to robertkaplan.com. <laughs> exactly, or to photographer.com. Anyway. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you're you know an underwater, a female underwater photographer in Beijing, right, you're going to get work because there may be a lot of those people that need that, but when somebody needs an underwater photographer, female underwater photographer in Beijing, you're going to be the one, right? <laughs> And yeah, yeah, yeah. so whereas if it's just like, oh, we just need a photographer in Beijing, who cares, right? You could pick anybody. So I don't know if I'm explaining that properly, no, but I, gotcha. but I, yeah. I really feel like from a marketing standpoint, it's good to be a, a real specialist. And also I think you, you develop better context in your field and you just you – can, you can spend more time concentrating on what it is that you do. So I sort of picked those two fields because I didn't want to give up either one. 
and then I, I basically had to turn down jobs that didn't fit into those categories. And that was hard, you know, and that's business, that's business though. And it, it was not easy to do because, you know, somebody's calling, Oh, we want to pay you a thousand bucks to go shoot this thing, but it's not gonna, you know, it's not in the same field that I want to really pursue uh, my opportunity. So it was hard. Maybe a thousand bucks I would take it anyway. But you know. <laughs> I say a thousand bucks, a thousand bucks. <laughs> All right, three hundred bucks I would turn it down. Like, um, you know, I just wouldn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> well, too late. <laughs> too late. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, so I so I really started to focus more on those two fields. Um, to back up a little bit, uh, before I moved, I actually had some context at Sports Illustrated because I was the the sports guy at the Miami Herald, one of the sports guys at the Miami Herald. Um, they knew who I was and I, I had met this, the SI guys and, you know, I had some friends and mentors who worked at the magazine. And so, um, so I actually was up here in New York for a, a Dolphins game. I think it was in November of 2000 and somebody will have to look that up, but it was a Jets Dolphins game. And I remember the game very well. It was a Monday night game and the, and it was a game where the Dolphins were up huge early and Jay Fiedler God, I pulled that name out of my butt right there. Jay Fiedler was the Dolphins quarterback. He was there for like a year. And I'll never forget it because it's it's a completely irrelevant story, but it's funny. Um, The Dolphins went up huge. And we were talking about deadlines and, you know, you got to move pictures. Well, Monday night that year, the Monday night games, they started at like 9 p.m. And the color front deadline for the paper was like 9.15, right? So, I mean, it wasn't quite that. Or maybe it was 9.30, 9.45. We had to get a picture out there quick. So the Dolphins scored like two or three touchdowns early. And they were killing the Jets, just running up and down the field, no problem. So I had a picture of Fiedler, uh, you know, celebrating, running straight at me, arms up in the air. So I moved that picture. They put that picture on the front page, right? Mm -hmm. So then what happens? Fourth quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, Jets come back. The game goes into overtime. Now it's like one in the morning. Game goes into overtime and the Jets won. So now they're stuck. They've got a picture on the front page of Fiedler celebrating. And I'll never forget, they could, they could still change the text on the page, but they couldn't change the photo. Oh, no. So they wrote around it in the caption. They wrote like, well, earlier in the game, this was Jay Fiedler's, you know, <laughs> excitement. But later, you know, so they had to just write around it some way. But, you know, that was what you had to do, right, with deadlines. So anyway, I digress. But that, that I think it was that weekend I spent in New York, and I actually went to the Sports Illustrated offices. And maybe it was October because I think it was during the World Series. And I remember sitting in the director of photography's office with the director of photography and the managing editor of Sports Illustrated. I'm already like way out of my league, right? Just sure. and, the, and we're watching the World Series together, right? And I think it was the one where Piazza and Clemens had a, like an altercation. Like Piazza threw his helmet at Clemens and Clemens chased him. And I don't remember. It was something, I remember that. something yeah, crazy. Yeah. And I was sitting in the Sports Illustrated office watching this happen. It was ridiculous. And um, – but, you know, I went in, and the good thing is because they knew me, I didn't have to, like, bring a portfolio and, like, show images. They knew my work. So it was more just a, hey, how's it going conversation. And by just sheer luck and just, you know, talk about where preparation meets opportunity, I had been shooting digital now for probably five years at that time. You know, I was an early adopter, and, and at the Herald, I got one of the first digital cameras there. Which one was it? Oh, geez. I wish I could remember exactly what it was. I remember beta testing one that was built onto a Nikon 8008, and it was tethered with a cord to a hard drive that you had Whoa. to wear in a backpack. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was ridiculous. You had a backpack for I had your a backpack. <laughs> that was a hard drive, you know? <laughs> and, great. yeah. And then that was just a beta test. But then the one – the first one I used full-time because I was uh, – myself and uh, Joe Rimkus were the first two full-time digital shooters at the, at the paper because we were the sports guys. 
And uh, gosh, it was probably like the DCS-1 or something. Like there was no screen on the back. You couldn't see the images. You just shot and had a, all it had was a button on the back for a voice memo. You could leave audio. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the only button on the back. And the batteries weren't removable. You had to actually plug the camera into the wall to charge it. So like at halftime of the game, we'd run in and plug the camera in for like 10 minutes just to charge it up. So Because um, it would be dead by halftime. Mm-hmm. Um, and they costed like $25,000. It was ridiculous. So... Uh, but I but and the cameras got better obviously and by by 2000 they were at least usable right so uh, I at SI they were still shooting film they they shot Chrome film slide film and because that's the quality was still much better than digital and, and SI is all about quality so but they were thinking already maybe we might start shooting digital one of these days and they were like ooh you know digital tell us what we need to know. And I was like, okay, so now all of a sudden I'm the expert, right? They don't know anything about it. And I just came in at the right time and I told them what I thought and I gave them some advice. And then I moved a few months later and they – so I moved in February of 2001 and within the first two weeks, they called me to assign me to shoot the Daytona 500. Now, I'm not a race Digitally? guy. Well, here's the thing. So they called me – the, for the Daytona 500, I'm not a race guy. Mm-hmm. They already had like four great racing photographers shooting this, guys who've done it a hundred times. I've never even been to a big race like that. I've been to the ones in Homestead, but you know, never Daytona, right? So I said, okay, you're going to go. You're going to shoot film. Now, I was a Canon shooter at the time. I'm now a Nikon shooter, but I was shooting Canon at the time. And so, okay, you have to bring all your Canon gear and shoot film, shoot slide film, which I also hadn't shot much of in the last ten years. And shoot slide film at the race. The race was on Sunday and they said just on the off chance like there's a rain out or something crazy happens and they have to go to Monday, which is the deadline for the magazine. The magazine closes on Monday. Also bring all the digital stuff. We're going to give you all the digital stuff to bring and so you can shoot on Monday in case we need it, right? So the digital stuff was all Nikon. This was the D1X. Mm-hmm. So I had never traveled with so much gear in my life because now I had all my Canon stuff with a 400 and a 600 and then I had all the Nikon stuff with a 400 and a 600. Wow. So I had doubles of everything. Mm-hmm. And they provided most of it, which was which was great. But I had never – I didn't even know how to pack that stuff. Like I didn't have the right equipment. Well, that was before the days of all these fancy camera bags, you know. Right, exactly. I mean we had some but nothing like we have now. So, so I had to make my way down there with like five cases of long lenses, you know. And I shot on Sunday, and I barely knew what I was doing. You know, I actually okay. So here's a secret that I I don't think I've ever told anybody publicly. Bum bum bum. <laughs> Photo Brigade exclusive. <laughs> exactly. You need a little theme song. So that week when they, they assigned me like on Monday, and I was such a racing newbie that I knew nothing about it. I actually went out and bought NASCAR for Dummies, and I read that book that week cover to cover because I had no clue what I was mm-hmm, doing. Right, mm-hmm. but. I'm, you know, it's embarrassing, but I'm, I'm, I think it's important to, to, to study up. Oh yeah. And, you know, I, I went in knowing a lot more than I would have if I had not read that book. So big fan of the dummies books. I, I, I've, I've read one of those books, but it wasn't, wasn't for NASCAR. <laughs> it wasn't for a sports illustrated assignment. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> so, um, well these days, David, we have this thing called Google. Oh, right. The internet, <laughs> the interwebs. I understand. I've heard of, I've heard of these tubes that you have. Sure. Um, but anyway, yes, back then I actually go into a bookstore and buy the book. But anyway, um, so I went there having some idea what was happening, but I'd still never covered a race like that. And, and I did the best I could. Um, and then – so here's the unfortunate part of the story is that Dale Earnhardt died at that race. Oh. 
last last time around the track, it was right near the end of the race. He hit he hit the wall and he died. Right now, two things that you know, as unfortunate as that is, and as as horrible as that story is. It just so happens I had, of all dumb luck, I had made a picture of him, like, getting in his car at the beginning of that race and putting on his helmet. In terms of there was a lot of controversy about the helmet and, you know, was it made – I don't know. Remember, was it made properly? Yeah, there's a seatbelt thing too. There's a seatbelt thing. And I had pictures of him getting in his car and putting on his helmet and putting on his goggles right before he left for the last time. Right? Mm-hmm. So that picture ran in the magazine and in the tribute. Like, they did a commemorative, and it ran as a double truck, a two-page thing. And that was on slide film. It was chrome. It was, wasn't very well exposed, you know, it was like he was in the car and half in shadow and half in sunlight. And I, I think I blew the exposure a little bit and on Chrome film, as you know, there's oh, no latitude. Yeah. So, uh, it's not a very good picture, but it was it turned out to be an important one. And then here's the thing. So Sunday night, all the big time race photographers go home. They got to get all their film back to New York. They bring it all in. Well, I stayed with all the digital stuff. Now I didn't need the long lenses, but I went back to the track. And I shot pictures of people laying flowers at the track and just the scene around the uh, around the, the uh, track. And I made those pictures. This was Monday afternoon at like 2 in the afternoon. Now, the magazine, for them to get a picture at the time, for them to get a picture in that was shot on Monday at 2 o'clock, they would have to have like a Learjet take the film back to here, which they had done. By which the way. they do, right. Yeah, they used to do all the time. The Super Bowls, they used to have two Learjet runs. One at halftime and one after the game just to get the film back to New York. Crazy. Yeah. But anyway, that was when people had money. <laughs> Publications <laughs> had Publications, money. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I shot all that stuff digitally. I literally went to like a little hotel down the street and like begged them to let me use their, their phone in the lobby. And I plugged – because this was no broadband or Wi-Fi. I literally needed just a phone line. So I plugged into their phone line and I transmitted like three you know, medium-resolution JPEGs into the magazine and it ran in the magazine that week and they were ecstatic. Was that one of their was that would that have been their first digital photo that they that they ran or hmm, that's a good question. They may have run some some wire photos before that. Oh, that's true. It was the first one shot by one of their guys on assignment. Um, I did have I uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I did have within the next so then within the next few months I became the digital guy. Right. right. And I was the only guy shooting digital for the first, you know, maybe six months at the magazine. And I was shooting everything digitally, and they would send me. It was cool because they would send me in for special stuff, right? So we did the which golf tournament, like the Western Open or one of the big, one of the bigger golf tournaments. And um, you know, we had our great golf photographers on the field, Simon Brody and Fred Buich, and those guys were on the on the not on the field, on the course, shooting the event. And then I was in a helicopter overhead shooting digital, just trying to make something different, right? So I went up, and and that event. I had an overhead shot of the, you know, the big putt on 18, and I can't even remember who the golfer was, but, uh, and that was the first double truck, first two-page digital photo ever in Sports Illustrated. That's so, awesome. Yeah, and I'm like, and who am I? I'm sure the staffers hated me because, like, who is this kid? And he's coming in and, you know, stealing all the thunder. But for a little while there, it was really cool. And then they asked me to work with the staff guys and train everybody. So I basically spent the next two years going around the country almost every week and meeting with all these legendary sports photographers who were staff photographers at SI and getting to know everybody on a personal level. And they could see that I was, you know, a nice guy and, you know, not, not trying to jump in on anybody's action and help them and teach them. They had never shot digital before. Some of them, you know, were younger guys and had played with it maybe a little bit on their personal time, but, but had never shot it for the magazine. And then some of them were older guys who didn't even have computers, 
right? And they and all of a sudden now they've got to shoot a camera that they've never used before. And, you know, your camera is part of your body, right? Sure, yeah. And to, to be forced to switch was very, very tough. There were definitely a few years there where it was it was difficult. And so... So I, but I, I got to be that guy that sort of helped smooth that transition. So I had to, I worked with them on how to use the cameras properly and how to set everything. I mean, you know, there's, even then there were hundreds of settings mm-hmm. and, and then to how to load the images into a computer and how to transmit them back to the office and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, in the beginning, they actually had everybody ship their digital cards in just like film. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit easier, but then eventually we were, tra- we'd be, you know, we started transmitting. So there was there were a few years there, and then so I would do that during the week, and then they'd have me shoot over the weekend. So that was my after those first few months of getting on my feet in New York, I spent the next few years really doing that for Sports Illustrated. So it shows how important it is to you know learn new things, be on top of the game yeah. uh, when you're you know trying to make it in, in this field of photography. Did you say that you you learned how to use the digital? When did you start learning digital? You said it was was it the, the workshop? No, it was, you know, at the Herald, they pretty much gave me the camera and it was, it had to be mid to late nineties. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But it, was, it wasn't until the two thousands till I got my first digital. Yeah. Most people didn't switch. We were really early with it. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm sure I, the beta tests on that crazy backpack hard drive had to be, I remember shooting a Miami heat Chicago bulls playoff game in Miami. I think it was a game three. And the Bulls just destroyed – because this is the Michael Jordan Bulls, right? right. The Bulls. <laughs> yeah, the, the Bulls. And uh, I'm sh- I think the, the, the Bulls just destroyed the Heat in three straight. It was best of five, you know, first round. And But I remember that game three using that camera. And we had, you know, guys there shooting film for real. And then I was kind of playing around with the digital. And it was just horrible to shoot. I mean it was the frame. I remember the, the full – you could look the full frame of the camera. And then there was a box drawn – Oh, on the right. viewfinder, the sensor, yeah. and that was the size of the sensor, and that was you had to keep your frame, you know, in that little box. Yeah. And I was one of the guys who, because I was giving feedback, and I went to them and said, "Look, you can't, you got to like darken the outside or blow it up, zoom it in, or something, because just seeing that whole frame screws you up completely. Surely, yeah. So you can't. Keep it's almost like in that it's box. almost like shooting a uh, rangefinder or something. Yeah, exactly, because you're not seeing what you're what you're getting. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, so let's transition this back into, uh, you know. A little bit of the, uh, yeah, we are going kind of long, I guess. But we, I do tend to talk a lot. Yeah, you you're, talker, noticed, you're a talker. You're a talker. Um, can, Some so, of it's true, by the way. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, why don't we talk a little bit about how, how then you got into music photography? Let's uh, you know let's quickly move move into that because I also want to talk a little bit about just the business of photography yeah. and give a little bit of advice to those that are that look up to you. We should also go a little bit into you talk. You just I want to transition a little bit before we get to the music thing. You talked about learning new skills and and pushing yourself. I often, when I speak publicly and I do slideshows and things, I, I have one that I call separate yourself from the pack. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important, in, especially now where everybody's a photographer and the, and the competition is insane because they're just supply and demand is way out of whack. There's way more supply than demand. So how do you separate yourself? Right. And one of the ways is, you know, new skills. And, and sometimes it's a, it's, you know, a shtick or whatever it is, but you've got to have something that separates you. We don't have to go too far into the Gigapan thing, but that was by, you know, when I, when I played around with the Gigapan at Obama's inauguration, which was, I'm sure everyone listening has seen that photo. Yeah. I mean, it got 20 million views on the web. So, (laughs) so, so if you, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's the infamous Gigapan photo where you could zoom in to see basically anyone's face in the crowd. 
And um, yeah, there were two million people there, and I, you know, did the Gigapan. Basically, in short, it it's a piece of hardware, and there's also accompanying software that, you know, you can already shoot overlapping images, multiple overlapping images, and then stitch them together with Photoshop or something like that. Well, the Gigapan unit, you put your camera into the into this robotic mount, and it basically moves the camera automatically so that the overlap and the is exactly the same every time. You can set how much overlap and you set the parameters of what you want to do. It assists you in that process of shooting it. So at the inauguration, I just did – I brought it with me on a whim. I had never used it before. I called the company. They would sent me a loaner just to play around with. And I, I made a picture that, that yeah, it, I had no idea, you know, that it was going to be as big as it was. But I was shooting regular photos. And then on the side, I was like, yeah, let's see what this thing does. And, you know, it, it's, it changed my career. It changed my life because um, that one thing has, has become a part of my um, repertoire, you know. So now I get – when I'm not on tour, I get as many calls, if not more, for Gigaband stuff as I do for regular traditional stills, you know. Going back to what I said before about photo editors, you know, if you want, I like to think, if you want a really good Gigapan, hopefully you call me, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm kind of a Gigapan You're guy. The Gigapan. I'm a Gigaman. Gigaman. <laughs> Gigaman. Gigaman with the Gigaplan. <laughs> I drive a Gigavan and I could go on and on and on. But anyway. Please stop. I am. I'm done with that. But um, so, yeah, I mean, am I the best Gigaman photographer in the world? No, but I'm, I, I got, you know, I have a lot of publicity with that image. So if you Google, you know, gigaband photographer. Actually, it's a good question. I'm not sure how far up yeah, I would should be look on that. You know but, what? What's funny? Speaking, I just want to digress real quick. You had you told me this story about how you randomly were in the presence of President Obama, and <laughs> randomly in the presence, and, yeah. and you didn't know what to say. So, <laughs> right. so it was it was yeah. Bad. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I did the picture of the inauguration, and then about a year later, I did uh, I shot the All Star Game. Uh, and he was throwing out the opening pitch, and I I uh, arranged through some connections I had made because of that Gigapan photo, uh, specifically with Pete Souza, who I'm sure you know very right. well, um, who is Obama's personal photographer. Um, he helped me get access to to photograph President Obama before the game and and underneath the field and where even the White House press corps didn't have access. So that at that event, I talked with uh, Robert Gibbs and some of the other people on the staff and, and the subject of the inauguration picture came up and they had told me he saw it, right? He had, the president had seen it. So that was already super exciting. So then it was a little bit later. It was, maybe it was last year. Another friend of mine, uh, handles the, um, motorcade for the pres- the presidential motorcade. He's one of the advanced guys for the motorcade. So he actually asked me if I would be one of the volunteer drivers, in New York City when the, when the president was coming into town. And he had asked me a few times, and I had never been able to do it. And finally, I, I, I you know, cleared my schedule and said, I'm going to drive for the president. Yeah. We go? yeah. So that's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime. So it was an amazing day, and, you know, driving down the FDR at, you know, whatever speed we were going, following, you know, the president. And we were going the wrong way down the FDR, and everything's <laughs> closed and blowing through red lights and in the city. So anyway, at the end of the night, they take a picture with the the few of us who who were the volunteer drivers with the president, and so um, so he comes up and he shakes everybody's hand. I think there were eight of us. He shakes everybody's hand. It's very nice. And and as we're clearing away, I, I was thinking ahead of time, like, okay, if I have three seconds to say something to him, what am I going to say? And there are two things I could have gone with. Right? He's very close with John Bon Jovi. Right? He. Jovi, John's good friends with President Clinton and President Obama, and so I could mention, oh, you know, I, I work for Mr. Bon Jovi, and you know, whatever. I figured I could have gone with that, or 
the inauguration. And I thought, well, you know, John's a great guy, but he doesn't need the publicity, right? So right. let's let's see, uh, let's go with Gigman. So I wasn't sure if I'd have a chance to say anything to him. So as we're walking away, he's like standing there because they're clearing us away and they're bringing in somebody else for a photo. So he's standing there. So I, I as I walk by him, I reach out and I shake his hand again. And I said, oh, sir, you know. It's a pleasure to meet you again. And I said, I did. I don't know if you remember, I did that photo at your inauguration, that big panoramic that you can zoom in. He, he, he his face lit up, and he. I wrote it down, and I, I should look it up so I quote him properly. But basically, he said, he said, oh, you did that. That was so cool. And he goes, you got skills. You got skills. You got skills. I love that. <laughs> the president of the United States, the most powerful man on the planet, told me, David Bergman, you got skills. I'm going to use that if I ever write a biography. <laughs> yeah, you got skills. <laughs> you got skills with a Z at the end. In quotes, you got skills, President Barack Obama. That is like, you know, I don't get starstruck, you know, or anything like that. But I ran out of that room like floating. That was the coolest thing That's a big ever. deal. That's a big deal. You, you got know. skills, President you got skills. Barack Obama. Anyway. <laughs> so that picture literally changed my life, and and I, MLB.com, baseball, Major League Baseball is a really good client, and I used to shoot playoff games for them, just as a traditional still photographer. Well, in the last three four years since the inauguration, I've done so many gigapants for them. I've covered the World Series, God knows how many times, and uh, you know how many games, and a bunch of regular season games, and I've made more money. I made more money last year on gigapans than I did on traditional still photos. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, and who knew, you know, but yeah. that's... So you tried something new. You didn't know it was going to turn into anything, and, and, it, and it did. Exactly. If I had just gone to the inauguration and shot regular pictures like the 500 other photographers that were there, the 500 amazing, but it still amazes me that nobody else did something like that, but um, but I think it's changed since, this inaugura- since the second Obama inauguration, but... For the first few years, if you Googled the phrase inauguration photo, like you didn't have to put the year or my name or gigman, just generic inauguration, my blog was number one. That's awesome. So, yeah. So that I, that was just me, like you said, trying something different and it worked out. Okay. Let's let's okay. let's let's talk the the music back to the where so, we started. An so hour ago. Uh, you had to yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, you, you started tourphotographer.com at some point, right? So okay, <laughs> I know this is probably a long story. We should, we don't need. No, to that's go okay. I can I can give you the basics. But basically, um, you know, I was doing the sports thing. This is now in the we're into the two thousands, two thousand the aughts, the aught five, aught six, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm working a lot for Sports Illustrated. They're my biggest client. But at the same time, I always loved music, and I wanted to do more of that. And touring in particular, when I was at the Herald, I had pitched a story, probably in ninety six. Um, to the Herald about, hey, let me go on the road with Gloria Stefan, right? Miami favorite. She had been in a bus accident a few years earlier. They didn't think she was going to walk again. She came back. She was touring again. She was doing this major tour. And then the tour was going to end with a bunch of shows in Miami. So let me go out on the road, make some great pictures of her, and we'll run them with the, with the, the you know, when she comes to Miami at the end. They said, great, do it. It took me a while to actually get the access and work it all out, but eventually I went on the road for like a week. I don't know. In my mind, it was you know, it was a month, but I think it was probably just a few days. But I just had a blast. I had never been on a tour bus before. I got to ride with them and her family, and they were so amazing. Everybody was so nice. Security, the crew, everybody was great. And I just I fell in love with it, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I knew it was something I wanted to do. But at the newspaper, there weren't a lot of opportunities to do that. How many times can you do that story, right? Mm-hmm. So... I'm doing the sports thing now in the aughts. I love saying that. Um, And uh, I knew I wanted to get into the tour thing. So uh, I had a few musician friends uh, who were touring on a, you know, doing clubs and things like that. Specifically, 
uh, Pat McGee, who's still a very good friend of mine. He plays a lot of colleges and, and a lot of clubs. And then there was a band Vertical Horizon, which was actually, they had a number one hit called Everything You Want, and they were pretty big. And they were going to tour together over, I think it was in the summer, the summertime, maybe it was just the spring. And they were going to do a tour together. And I knew both of them very well. So I said, I went to them, I said, hey, let me, let's do something. Let me go out with you guys. I'll just come out for a few weeks and let's try to, I'll shoot each show and then I'll sell prints from the show. Like, so you're, you're a fan at the show. You have a great time. You really enjoy yourself. And then the next day you can go online and look at a selection of hopefully really great photos, not just like snapshots, but really professional photos. And you can buy like a nice eight by 10 with the date on it and the city, and you can frame it and hang it on your wall. And remember that evening that you had, um, at the show and they're friends of mine. So they said, yeah, sure. Come out. You know, I don't think they thought anything would come of it, but they were like, yeah, whatever. Just come on out. We'll party and hang out for a couple weeks. Okay. So I did that and it was sort of like a test market for me. And I, obviously they were playing, you know, the, the clubs they were playing were pretty small. They had a couple of big shows, but you know, relatively small shows. So, you know, I don't know how much good data I got from it, but from, if nothing else, I, I was able to sort of get my, the lab in order and sort of figure out how to place orders and do all the customer service stuff and all that. And I really got it figured out and I had a blast and I said, this is something I really want to do more of. So it took me a while, but eventually I hooked up with the bare naked ladies. Um, I had done, actually I had done, done some work for Avril Lavigne and they were at the same management at the time. And Avril's manager walked into the bare naked ladies manager office and said, this is a good guy. You should give them a shot. And, and they did. And so I toured with them. I basically became their tour photographer and toured on and off with them for a number of years. I'm still close with them. They're, they're great guys and so much fun to tour with. And, and, but it, this was now arenas. I mean, they were, at the time, they were playing arenas. So, so it's one thing leading to another, leading to another. Small steps. Networking. Yep. Um, you know, coming up with good ideas to separate yourself from the pack. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and. Uh, and it kind of never ends. And, you know, it, it's whenever I listen to people tell stories like this, I always go, oh, yeah, but really, what's the real story? And the truth is, you know, it is happening exactly like I'm describing it, but it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, from the time I went on that, from the time I came up with the idea till the time I actually went out with Pat McGee and Vertical Horizon might have been, been a year. And then from the, from then until the Bare Naked Ladies might have been two years, you know, mm-hmm. and constantly – talking to people. And at first I didn't want to tell anybody this idea because I thought, oh, I'm sitting on a gold mine. I'm sitting on a great idea. I don't want to give it away. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you've got to tell people about it to right. get it out there. So eventually I, I sort of got over that paranoia and just started talking about it. Everybody I knew, managers and publicists and people. And people would go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea, but blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you get a lot of naysayers. Well, the music industry, what I found, <laughs> yeah. and, and what was really nice was was that when I started doing this whole Bieber thing, I had this great resource, David, here, who's been doing the music world. and, and <laughs> What did and, I say? Remind me what I said. I, you know, <laughs> I said, don't, I don't do it! You were, yeah, you were no, just I saying, didn't say that. you were just trying to say, you know, it's a different world. You know, you have to, you know, you have to work a certain way. There's a certain way the music industry works and it's ruthless and they take forever to get back to you and, and all this stuff. If they get back to you at all. If they get back to you yeah. at all. Um, this is probably something that I did tell you because I tell people this all the time. Look, we come from the newspaper world and the journalism world and if, a paper like the Miami Herald, maybe not anymore, but back in the day when they had, you know, job openings, if there was a job opening at the Miami Herald, you know, there are message boards and there are places where that would get posted publicly. There's a job or everybody knows who's leaving and that there's going to be a job opening. And they you could send in a portfolio, it would say who to send it to, and they'd get a thousand portfolios probably. 
and they would spend a couple months going through them, and then they'd pick like five people. They'd fly them in. I did that a couple times. I flew in on interviews, um, uh, you know, for for newspapers, and you'd fly in and you'd you know meet people and show them your book, and then they would hire somebody, right? They'd hire the best person. Well. Let's say the Rolling Stones need a photographer. Like they're not putting an ad out, you know. No right. big international rock band needs photographer. You know, it doesn't happen. It's usually like, oh, the drummer's brother has a camera. Let's bring him. You know, or the guitar tech. He shoots good pictures. We'll just use that. So uh, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It just is. Right. It is the way it is. And they don't hire photographers. That's not. A, there's not a culture of tour photographers there's just not not only that but they're very very um I, what's what's the what's the proper word they're very very uh insulated yeah, they, yeah. they don't like to let anyone else into their club the inner circle and and when and when you're a photographer there's you know you have to be in that inner circle yeah. um or you're not doing your job properly exactly so you really it's really about gaining their trust and and showing them that you can do what you do well yeah. Um, no, I and everybody I've ever toured with, for every crew member and every staff member, you have to be very good at your job, but you have to know how to act. You've got to know how to hang, you know, and I mean that in all ways. You've got to know how to, how to, you know, when I work with Bon Jovi now, you know, obviously I've got to make good pictures, but I've also got to know I have access to John's dressing room. There are like three people that can walk into John's dressing room unannounced, and I'm one of them. So, but... I have to know when to walk in and when not to walk in. Sure. When I'm in there and it doesn't feel right, I need to know to get the hell out. You know, when he's talking to somebody and I probably shouldn't be listening, I get out of there. You know, um, there are times when he's talking to somebody and I and I am in there and I have to stay in there and I he just knows that I am not going to listen or repeat any information. So what kind of stuff did he say? <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, <laughs> No, but I mean that that is a huge part of my job is just knowing when to be there and when not to be there. And you know, as I've become friendlier with him and I have we have a closer relationship now than we did in the beginning, you know, I'll push it a little bit more. I'll be I'll shoot something and he'll wave, you know, he's waved me off before like, you know, he's tired, he's walking out of the venue or something and I'll just snap a frame or two and he just he, I I can just he can look at me now in a certain way. Yeah, you build a rapport. And I just know, okay, I'm going to leave him alone now. He doesn't, you know, it's just we we've gotten to that point. But in the beginning, you don't know that. And if you piss him off, you know, and that's true with anybody, not just him, you know, you're not going to be around for very long. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm just like going all out because I think it's a great picture, I'm not paparazzi. You know, I'm, I'm, I've always said I only want to photograph people who want me to be there. So I'm not hiding in the bushes waiting for him to come out. If he doesn't want to be photographed now, that's fine. I'll photograph him tomorrow. It's no big deal. I think that's a, that's a good way to, to look at that. I've, I've always – um, I, I hate it. I, I, one of the things I hate the most when somebody comes up to me because I have a camera and says, "Oh, you're paparazzi." <laughs> right, right, That's right. got to be like the worst thing right. someone can say to it me. It does have that word has such a negative connotation now. Ever since like Princess Diana, and you know, there's such a negative connotation. But you know, okay. So here's my paparazzi thing. <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I have to go there. Look, I'm not a fan of the paparazzi. I don't. I, those guys. Some of them are very nice people. I've met some of these guys over the years in New York City. Um, there's a fine line there between sort of celebrity photographers and paparazzi and, and, you know, here's the thing though. It's easy for people to sit back and say, Oh, I don't like what the paparazzi do to the celebrities and they shouldn't be doing that. But here's the thing. Do you buy people magazine? Do you watch TMZ? Sure. Do you, it's, that's what causes that industry. If, if the money dried up and there was no, you know, uh, no demand for those pictures that would go away. 
It just wouldn't exist. There's nothing I love more than celebrity nip slips and upskirts. <laughs> well, Let me tell you. Know. What you do at your personal life is none of my <laughs> business. But, but no, I, I'm serious, though. It, it's, it's all about the money. That's why they do what they do. There's a lot of money in it. It's, in some ways, it's good for the celebrities. You know, It gets their name out there. The celebrities don't all hate it. Oh, celebrities, God. They, they, they live for that stuff. Yeah, but let me say this. About, Some of them. <laughs> for the record, John Bon Jovi, not a big fan. Not so much, yeah. He pretty much does whatever he can to stay away from that. You know, And, and so Drew Carey is one of my clients and friends, and I've mm-hmm. worked with him a lot over the years. In fact, he's got a Drew Carey bobblehead sitting here at his desk. I do, right, kind of right next to a bobblehead of me, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. So, That's pretty cool bobblehead. That was a, yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, Drew always used to say, not to me, but just in general, but he's like, if you don't want to be, you know, hounded by the paparazzi, don't go to Mr. Chow's on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, like, you, the celebrities know where the paparazzi are all going to be. So it's like, Drew, he's not into that at all. So he stays out of line. You never see him in the tabloids. Cause right. He doesn't go to places where all the paparazzi hang out, you know. So, um, you know, it's definitely a, a um, symbiotic relationship there. But having said that, the general public that criticizes paparazzi, if you stopped buying the magazines and didn't watch TMZ and all those other web shows and whatever, it would go away. It would yeah. be the end of it, period. Yeah. It's, it's the, the demand by the public is what causes it. Well, so <laughs> anyway, yeah, I hate people. No, I'm just kidding. I, you know, but yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, so, um, I get, you know, we, we've talked about a lot. Uh, we've talked about basically your entire career. We still didn't get to how I got into the into the onto the tour that I'm on. But, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, no, no, that that that's something that we need to talk about. Um, so let, let's hit that up, and then and then we'll sort of slow. Let's talk for another hour, and then we'll just hit it like in the last thirty seconds, and then it'll be. This over. is going to be one hell of a download for, for these people <laughs> right. listening to this podcast, but it's okay, you know, just megabytes. Um, just so, so okay, so Bon Jovi. Let, let's just t- tell the people how you got in, the involved. The people, the audience, my people, Your the, people. the brigade, the brigade, the photo brigade. <laughs> um, let it, let's. So so what happened? So yeah, I mean. I wish I had a really good, simple story because people ask me all the time, how did you get hooked up with Bon Jovi? And I wish I could say, like, John saw my picture in Sports Illustrated and called me up and needed me on tour. It doesn't happen that way. The world doesn't work like that. So, um, But the fact is is that all the things that you've talked about your, 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 in your career leading up to this – uh, you know, plays a, a role in, in you getting this. Absolutely. Hit. And you never know exactly where it's going to come from. But, you know, I wanted a huge – tour, right? I, I, you know, I had, I had done Bare Naked Ladies. I had done the other smaller tours and I knew there were big tours out there. There's Madonna and U2 and Justin Bieber and, and Gaga and, um, Coldplay and Bon Jovi. And I wanted one of those. I desperately, desperately wanted to do one of those tours. So I had shot those shows. I probably shot hundreds of concerts, but just as a press photographer where you get two or three songs and then you're ushered out of the, uh, ushered out of the building. So, um, so how do you get that? Well, there's no yellow pages for who do you call for to get with Bon Jovi, you know, to hook up with Bon Jovi. There's, exactly. You know, a lot of times those people don't want anybody to know who they are because then they get flooded. They already get flooded. They get flooded no matter what. Yeah. Exactly. So if they were even more public, forget it. So I, as an outsider, I really didn't know who to, who to go to. So basically just over the years, continuing the work that I was doing and the people that I would meet. You know, I would tell people constantly about this idea that I had and this tour photographer. So I, I, I created that site, tourphotographer.com, and that's where the print selling happens. It's basically just my e-commerce storefront. Um, but uh, And by the way, I should point out that 
selling prints of artists is a commercial use. So like that's not something you can do. Like I would shoot a show for uh, you know, you should you shoot for the New York Times and I would shoot something maybe for another client and you can't just go sell prints of that. Like that's the artist has some right to their their image and the commercial use of their image. It would be like a t-shirt. You can't print up a t-shirt and go stand on the street and sell it. Now people do it. It's very illegal and they constantly bust people for that. So if you want to be have a decent reputation as a photographer and work with other artists, you don't want to be known as doing that, you know, as the guy doing that. So all these other bands that I had worked for, it's, you know, basically it's a revenue split, right? So they make money and I make money from these print sales and that instead of me paying them up front, like a if I was a t-shirt company, you know, a merch company, you know, those merch companies pay millions of millions dollars, of dollars, millions of dollars up front. Most of the, in most cases, the merchandise advance pays for the tour, right? It's true. So yeah, it's exactly how it works. I, you know, I don't know all the numbers, so I'm not sure if it still works that way, but I know, I know a few yeah. <laughs> and let's just say it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, millions of dollars. So, um, so that'll pay the, you know, the salaries of the staff for the tour and, uh, so anyway, I as you know, a, a small independent photographer, there's no way I could do that. So, with all these bands, I, I worked a deal where it was a revenue split, and they make money from the sales, as do I. So, um, uh, where were we going with that? Um, How'd you get? Oh, the, the, no, just uh, the commercial, not oh, yeah. being able to sell those pictures. So I don't want people to think like go out and just start selling pictures of your images. David has permission from from <laughs> exactly. these artists that exactly. he's selling the prints of. Exactly. So Bon Jovi was one that I was really trying to hook up with, and. Just like I said, over the years, constantly talking to people, telling them about this idea, and somebody would be like, oh, I know a guy who worked with Bon Jovi once, and somebody worked with this band, and -and so-and-so worked with that band, and it's just – here's the thing. I'm the tortoise, not the hare, right? Slow and steady wins the race in my book. Some people might work differently, and they can just like send out – you know, promos, really expensive high-end promos to like every band in the world and maybe get one that way. I just kind of – here, I've always said my marketing philosophy, I call it poke marketing. Here's what it is. Poke, 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 poke. Like I'm just he gonna, was He was touching me. I was actually touching. I have to, you have to actually poke somebody when you say that. Um, so I'm just constantly, hopefully putting out really good work because I want anything that anybody sees of mine to represent, you know, this, the, the quality that I want to be known for. But at the same time, just keep pushing, just a little bit here, a little bit there. And I would just meet people and, you know, talk to people. And, you know, the, the last, like, few people I met were getting closer and closer to the band. And But even then, like, you hit a wall. Like, somebody who was very close to the band who got all excited and said, oh, I'm going to talk to John about you. And then, you know, you never hear back from the guy, you know? Right. And, like, and I would send, you know, an email and he'd be like, and I would get nothing, you know? And it's like, what happened, you know? And that was very, very frustrating. And, but then, but this is what I do back to the poke marketing, that same guy, uh, maybe six months later, there was a picture that he had mentioned that he liked of mine in our, one of our first conversations, maybe six months later, I would just send him a nice print of that photo. And just out of nowhere, not asking for anything, not saying, Hey, what happened to you, dude? You know, (laughs) or I could use worse words. Um, but it was just like, hey, I remember you saying you like this print. Not even like referencing the fact that he blew me off totally. Hey, I remember you saying you like this picture. Thought you might want this for your wall. I made a nice print. I signed it. Sent it to him. That's it. Didn't ask for anything in return. And then guess what? He calls. You know? He says, hey, man. And I say, oh, yeah, yeah. You know? And in the course of the conversation, hey, whatever happened to that other thing we were going to do together? And he said, oh, yeah, it just didn't work out, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. He said, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. 
And then he, and this is now six months later, you know, and this is after years of trying to, you know, do, and the so-and-so he put me in touch with got it. And he was the first guy who had the, had the power to get me in a meeting with the boss, the boss, you know, not meaning manager of manager of John Bon Jovi, direct Uh day-to-day manager, the guy. Right. So, so this, and even, even that guy, one step away from the guy, (laughs) sorry, I'm being vague, vaguer, but, um, even then it was like a month before the tour and it was like, Oh, we could start doing this right at the beginning of the tour. And he was like, nah, I don't know. And it still kind of didn't happen right away. He was excited about it, but he was just busy. And he was actually with the merch company at the time. He was busy and he just, it just didn't happen. But then like a month into the tour, so I was bummed. I was hoping to get it worked out before the tour started. But about a month into the tour, they were going to be in Philly, which was as close as they were going to get to New York city on that leg. And I just wrote him out of the blue, hey, buddy, you know, you guys are going to be here. We've never met. This guy was in L.A. We've never met. I'd love to just meet you and say hello face-to-face. Oh, yeah, no problem. Come on out to the show, whatever. So I go out. Uh, it was just going to be a, a meet with him. Next thing I know, I'm in the room with him and the guy, the yeah, manager yeah. guy, right? And we're just having a great time. We got along great. We schmoozed. We talked sports. We talked all kinds of stuff. You know, I was able to – I don't know how many covers I had at the time, but, you know, it was – they were impressed by, you know, some other stuff I had done, my Sports Illustrated work. and By your career. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at this point, you know, I've been doing this. I mean, now I've been doing it 25 years, right? So, you know, I've got some stories I can tell. So we had a, we just had a good time with it. And then we started talking about the Gigapan. So the, the traditional tour of photography, on paper, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. John's been photographed by everybody. He's been, you know, he's been in the business for 30 years now. You know, pictures of him on stage, they were like, nah. You know, we're not that really that interested. But then we started talking about the Gigapan, and their eyes lit up. And they said, ooh, that's kind of cool. We've never seen something like that before. And they knew the inauguration photo. Mm-hmm. So they had seen it. John was there. John's in the picture, right? So um, so they, uh, they said, oh, we should try that at a show one day. That'd be cool. And I said, well, it just so happens I've got all the gear in my car. Let's do it tonight. <laughs> oh, wow. Preparation meets opportunity, right? I had no idea... I was never going to pitch them to do a gig pan at the show. That's not really what I went there to do. But I brought every piece of friggin' gear that I had. I, I had lights to do a portrait. I had traditional still gear. You were prepared. I was prepared. And I didn't think I'd need any of it. And I left it in the car. I didn't bring it in. you know. But And I had to rent a car. Like I, mean, I live in New York City. I don't own a car. So, But I went all out just to make sure that I was ready. And, and so they were like, oh, great. Let's do it tonight. They slapped an all-access pass on me, and uh, that was it. So here's the rest of the story, though. I did it that night, and, and you know, the next few hours I was, like, kind of piecing through, like, how am I going to do this? The Gigaman's kind of tough to do at a show because the light's changing light's constantly. constantly changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not really made for that environment. Um, it's hard enough at an event where nobody's moving and the light is constant, but uh, but this was going to be really difficult. So I was I was kind of downplaying it a little bit, like – you know, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to, it'll be awesome to try and blah, blah, blah. We'll check it out. And, they, and they, you know, and everybody's cool about it. Hey, it's all right, whatever, you know. And they were playing two nights. This was at the old Spectrum, I think. Actually, it was probably the new building. I can't remember which building. There's like three arenas right there. But um, they, uh, so I said, so they were playing two nights there. So I had already told them, well, I'll do one tonight and then I'll bring it back tomorrow and show it to you. Because it's the, the post processing on that is, it takes forever. It's overnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's overnight if you rush, you know, but I wanted to have it for them the next day. So I, I shot it. I said thanks and goodbye to everybody, and I left, and I drove back, you know, an hour and a half from here. I drove back, uh, stayed up all night, worked on it, made it as good, good as I could, 
And then not only, here's the key though, not only did I have it ready now on the computer, but I also sent the file to a friend of mine in Philly who has a connection with a gallery and a really good printer. And on my way back into Philly, I went and I saw him and I picked something up. And then when I went in to meet with management, I showed it to them on the computer. I said, oh, here it is. And they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I said, but wait, there's more. And I unrolled a, like a 60-inch you know, fiber print of the entire arena with the lights. And you could see every person in the place and their jaws just hit the floor. You know? There's nothing better than a tangible piece of you know, I tell you, evidence. man, a print, you know, it's old school, but I think still images especially. We see them online all the time. They come and go. It's actually one of the toughest problems I have with my tour photographer's site is that you look at pictures and you kind of flip through them like it's ah, no big deal. But when you hold a nice fiber, you know, 11 by 14 print in your hand. Or a book. Or, or yeah. a book. It's it's a different experience, man. And there's a quality to it. And there's a the ta- that tactile experience and the, the time that you spend looking at it, I think it's a whole – this is why I still sell prints because people ask me, oh, are you going to sell digital downloads or whatever? I don't think there's that much value in it. First of all, you can already look at it on the website. I can't cover it up with watermarks to, you know, too badly to destroy the image. So you, you've already got to – you're already going to see it And online. once you put one download out there, it's just going to be on it the spreads. web. The, you know, Bon Jovi fans, I love them because they're so intense – but they, they would be out there in a second. Right? Be on their Everybody fan pages exactly. and whatnot. So, you know, that's fine. So, but a print is a print. It's a tangible item. And people also, culturally, I think we know we have to pay for something that you hold in your hand, right? It's hard to charge people for online stuff now because mm-hmm. it's just everything's free, right? But if, you're, if I'm going to ship you a print in the mail and I'm holding something in my hand right now to demonstrate, um, <laughs> it's just because I have to feel that, that tactile experience. Um, it... Uh, yeah, I think it's a whole different thing. So anyway, so I did the Gigapan that night. The next night I showed up with the print. They loved it. They said, let's do another one tonight. So I did one the second night. And then I said, hey, I'll do one tonight also. But So I'm doing one at the beginning of the show and one at the end of the show when the light is going to be relatively constant for 45 seconds. I found little breaks in the show where the light was mm-hmm. kind of constant. I said, but in the middle, can I just shoot like my regular photos just for fun, you know? And they were like, no, nah, I don't know. We have to ask John and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, let me know. No problem either way. They came back later. All right. He said it's okay. So the middle of the show, I shot the whole show, uh, you know, the whole middle section, regular photos. And I did a Gigapan at the end. So then the next day I emailed them the Gigapans and then also my regular photos. And they're like, oh, these are pretty good. Mm -hmm. So then they hired me to do five shows doing Gigapans. Um, And then uh, they weren't consecutive shows. We kind of picked big markets. It was like Dallas and Atlanta and a couple of big shows, not every show. And then – and then I said, well, let's do the still photos also, and we'll put those up on the website and sell them and just see how they sell. Right. And, okay, cool. So then we really started to push the prints. I was doing the Gigapans, but to be honest with you, from an economic standpoint, the Gigapans, there's really not no money in it. I mean, it drives traffic, but you don't, people don't really buy prints of that because that's the whole shtick is it's an online thing that right. you can zoom, zoom in, in right? and find yourself. And, and people, plus, if you get a print of it, it needs to be gigantic. Exactly. It needs to be huge, which most people aren't going to buy. So... Um, so people like it, but it's just it just doesn't sell like the regular pictures do. So, so then they 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 were that summer they were going to London. They were doing twelve shows at the O2. They were doing a residency at the O2 Arena in London, and they said we want you to come and do them. And um, the problem was I had already taken a gig that summer as the tour photographer for uh, Lilith Fair. So, which is Sarah McLaughlin's tour with all right. the female singer songwriters. So I was going to be gone most of that summer, but I could do the first five with Bon Jovi in London. So I said, I'll do the first five. And I said, hey, 
can we just do the still photos and like not because the gigabits like a, it was it's a lot of work to do all that post processing and edit my regular photos and we all kind of agreed that you know the gigapan it's awesome and people like it but it just the the images really we wanted to see how they were going to sell mm-hmm. so I said let me just do still photos at those shows and we'll see how it goes okay no problem so I left the gigapan at home and. I shot my – by this point, now they like my work. Right. <laughs> so I did all my still stuff, and it went really well. They were all really happy. Then I went and did Lilith, and then when the fall came around, they brought me on. They put me on a tour bus. I actually became a member of the crew, and I was shooting pictures every night and selling them, and that's where it all took off. So it, it went from – so literally <laughs> your your intro into you've – been, you've been trying to get on to Bon Jovi forever, right. and what ended up happening – was the gigapan yep. is what got you in the door. Yep, who knew? So if you hadn't, you know, decided to try out this gigapan at the inauguration. At the Obama's inauguration, yeah. That's, I probably wouldn't be with Bon Jovi right now. Yep. That's super right. cool. Yep. No, and uh, my, my friend Zach Arias has a great story on his website. He's actually a really great blogger and an amazing photographer. We'll get him on here. Yeah, you should. I can hook you up. He's a great guy. Um, but, uh, and you think I talk. He'll, he'll talk to him. But, uh, he's got a cooler beard than you, though. He does have a much cooler beard. He's got the cool, he's got like a ZZ Top beard. But anyway, he, uh, he tells a great story about, you know, everybody asks him, oh, how do you get your clients and all that? How do you go from being like an, an, a good amateur to being a pro? And he, he tells a story about his best client is some ad agency. I, I don't remember exactly who it is, but he said that his wife was singing in church one day. And, like, another woman came up to her and was like, oh, you have a beautiful voice. And, you know, and they became friends, the two women. And then, you know, the two husbands met. And the four of them became, like, couples friends. And then, like, he didn't even know what the husband did. And then, like, six months later, like, in conversation, it's like, oh, the guy works for an ad agency or something. And he, like, hired Zach to do a small gig. And, like, three years later, it's his best client. It's a huge paying client. And it's like, so people come up, how do I get a gig like that? Well, have your wife sing at church. You know, like you can't plan that, you know, people ask, how did you hook up with Bon Jovi? And I can't tell you, take this class and do this and learn to do this and do that. And you'll be a music photographer. There's just, everybody's path is different. This is, this is a creative field we're in. It's not, you know, if you were wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor, you go to law school, you go to medical school. There's specific paths on how to do it. You study this, you learn how to do that. And then, but we're creative people. We're in creative fields and there are, there is a big supply of us now. So you've got to separate yourself. You've got to come up with different ideas. Look, Facebook didn't exist what ten years ago, right? Right. Some kid in a in a uh, dorm room came up with this idea, and now it's the biggest company on the planet. So how do how do you become the next person millionaire to come up with that? I don't know. You know, you, right. you've got to come up with a new paradigm and a new business idea and a new. The selling prints, I don't. I'm not going to make Facebook money, but you know. It's kind of a new thing, and it's a hard sell because it's new. But and it's hope- a revenue share, which is something music people do not like to do. Exactly. That you know that was one of the difficulties I had as well. And one of the things that you, you were talking about, one of the things that I like to tell people is that it's it's all about networking, really. Uh, and and you never know who might be your next client. Anytime I'm out, you know, and I meet somebody on the, I mean, hell, I actually You're met. Better at it than I am. Well, I'm always I always have my business cards on <laughs> yeah. me. And one time I met some guy on the subway on my way to a Knicks game. I had my 300 over my shoulder and, and I, and, and I, you know, the kid was there in his Knicks outfit with his dad and, and they started talking to me like, you know, yeah, I'm shooting the Knicks game. And, and I said, uh, where are you guys sitting? I'll take a picture of you. And, and sure enough, they, they were wealthy people and had like, you, know, you didn't know that near front row seats. Yeah. 
And Why were they on the subway? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I, and I went and I took a couple of frames of them, got his email address, sent it to him, and it, you know, it, you know, a few months later, even a year later, actually, he calls me and wants me to do, you know, some corporate headshots and this and that, yeah. which, you know, there's money in that. Yeah. So just being nice to people and passing out your cards. I was going to say that's it, it's yeah, it's passing out your cards and networking, but it's also having a good attitude and being nice. But you, I mean, we we both know photographers who are very talented. But are just jerks, you know, and I yep. don't get it. And I, I grew up, you know, knowing guys like that, and it's just, I just, I never got it. Like maybe I'm naive, and maybe that's not how the world works. But I just think you can be a nice guy and still make a lot of money and still be very successful. And I just, I think, you know, when you do run into somebody on the subway, if they had been like, "Oh, what are you doing?" and you're like, ah, "Don't worry about it," you know, or you were just a jerk to them, you just lost, yeah. you just lost a gig. Exactly. Know? So you anybody, never anybody can be a client, yeah. and, and you know, I really. You know, thanks for telling you know us all about you know your career and and how you got into it. Uh, a lot of a lot of what you said hits home for me uh, regarding getting involved with Bieber. You know, my whole situation was I shot him for the New York Times. Then you know I I, I was one of the first people to really shoot him at such a young age. He didn't have a photographer at that point, and I thought, hey, you know, my my girlfriend, wife now, um, <laughs> you know, helped me design a book, which I ended up giving to his manager at the Today Show because my mother told me Justin Bieber's performing on the Today Show. <laughs> and after, you know, months and months of banging on the doors and giving prints to the publicists. I believe you called me and said, that I, was I when, want to go to the Today Show. What should I do? Yeah, that was when I, I started really talking. I was really talking to you yeah. and you really, you really gave me some great to advice. Be, to be fair, I mean, you know, people ask me for advice all the time. You, not only did you do it, you know, and you took it seriously. I mean, you know, I could go on and on about what a great photographer you are and blah, blah, no, no, blah. Go on, Nobody, go wants, on, to, go nobody on. wants to hear all that. But, uh, no, but seriously, I mean, you you know, look, the work speaks for itself. So that part's taken care of. But then, yeah, you know, you just have to go the extra mile and you just have to take the extra steps and, and do something that nobody else did, you know. And you, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities there that came up that, you know, if you tell somebody else, you know, how did, how did I get that gig? And it's like, well, <laughs> I was shooting for the New York Times. Yeah. This guy named Justin Bieber who nobody, had, you know, well, he was getting big, but he wasn't that big yet. Right. You know, you got him in just the right time and you were working for a big enough client that they took you seriously. Right. Because if you had come in and you were with, you know, robertsblog.com that nobody had heard of, they would, they might not Certainly, take you seriously. Yeah, yeah. But you come in as, you know, a photographer for the New York Times. Okay. This guy's already vetted. Right. So, right. Right. So they took you a little more seriously. You could have the conversation. And then you went back, you followed up, you went to the stage show, you made a quality Poked. product. Poke, 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 poke. Now yours happened pretty quickly. I mean, that's usually for me. It takes longer than that, but uh, but you know, you jumped on it, and that was great, and it worked out really well. Yeah. Well, um, all right, David. I think you know. I don't know. Is there is there anything else that you want to oh, give any tips to to our listeners? I'm sure there's more, but no, I think we've uh, yeah. We've, this is we've this gone is long enough. This is our longest. <laughs> Well, it is our second of, of podcast, all of them. Of all the podcasts, this is but the this longest. is twice as long as our last one. <laughs> Sorry, Vince. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I really appreciate it, David. And uh, again, tell tell everyone your websites and all your promotional all details. my stuff. So yeah, so my uh, you know the Bon Jovi pictures are all on tour. Actually, so here's the thing: we're going to be because I've been with them long enough now. They're going to be moving it into the bonjovi.com website. So what we're doing now is we're using bonjovi.com/slash/prince. Nice. For right now, if you go on, this is now, we're in, what, March 2013, it actually redirects to tourphotographer.com. Nice. So, so you know, long-term, my site is tourphotographer.com, but if you go to bonjovi.com slash prints, you'll be able to get the Bon Jovi stuff there. Me personally, davidbergman.net is my website. 
Uh, I used to blog way more often than I do now because I just don't have the time. I'm very active on Facebook. My Facebook is David Bergman Photo. Um, I also have Tour Photographer on Facebook is my business page, you know, facebook.com slash tour photographer. Twitter. Twitter is at David Bergman and at Tour Photo. What else? We all have like Jeez 18 Louise. different things are, now. I know. Yeah, what? You, you don't? Robert Kaplan. Look me up. Robert Kaplan. C-A-P-L-I-N. <laughs> there you go. Well, if you Google David Bergman, luckily I'm usually the first one, so there you well, go. Yeah, I have a dentist, but I've, I've got him, you know, way on the third page of Google. You know, my thing is the, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the David Bergman who has the .com, and I ordered, I got my website, you know, my domain like a million years ago. But somehow he got it before me. He's a realtor in San Francisco. He's actually a very nice guy. We never met in person, but he uh, he saw me interviewed on 2020 or something like that. And he wrote me an email. Oh, you're the photographer. I get emails for you sometimes. So now if he gets an email that's mistakenly to .com, so that, he actually forwards it to me. Oh, that's so, awesome. So thank you, David. I appreciate you doing that. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks again. And uh, make sure to check out our blog. Uh, it's thephotobrigade.com. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. See ya.